lifepodcasts.fm. This podcast is a Prime Media Broadcasting production. People are reshaping the mindset of the masses. Africa State of Mind. Welcome to another special episode of Africa State of Mind. On this episode, we celebrate press freedom. The United Nations declared May 3rd as World Press Freedom Day in order to raise awareness of the importance of freedom of press and to remind governments of their duty to respect and uphold the right to freedom of expression enshrined under Article 19 of the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Journalists from Saudi Arabia to Afghanistan and even the United States were targeted for murder in 2018 in reprisal for their work, bringing the total of journalists killed on duty to its highest in three years. The number of journalists killed in conflict fell to its lowest since 2011. This is according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. Angela Quintel, who is the program coordinator for the Committee to Protect Journalists in Africa, is worried about the safety of journalists. The rhetoric against journalists has really uh, created a situation and an environment all over the world where journalists now are probably more at risk. Nima Albahi, a Sudanese-British journalist and an award-winning international television correspondent with CNN, shares how she tackles story gathering in some of the toughest conditions. Firstly, I would say I'm a journalist. And so my job isn't to serve any narrative. My job is to tell the story. We start with Angela Quintel, the Africa Program Coordinator for the Committee to Protect Journalists. She worked as a journalist for more than two decades in South Africa, including as editor of the Mail and Guardian. She's also a former Secretary General of the South African National Editors Forum. She edited The Witness and The Mercury and was a presidential correspondent during Nelson Mandela's term as South Africa's first democratically elected president. Angela and her colleague made international headlines when they were detained in Tanzania in 2018. I asked her what happened. We were there um, as the Committee to Protect Journalists. So what we do, obviously, is um, it's a matter of ensuring that we're on the ground and we listen to journalists themselves. So instead of sitting in an office like I'm at the moment in Manhattan, you know, doing things over the phone, you really want to get onto the ground, you want to talk to the people, you want to speak to journalists, get, get first-hand um, information, um, like any journalist would do, right, mm. uh, if you're trying to do a story. So a lot of planning goes into missions like this. So it's not something that we take lightly. And when we travel as uh, employees of the Committee to Protect Journalists, we don't go undercover. We're pretty open about what we're doing. There's Mm -hmm. nothing to hide. Um, And that's exactly what happened with the Tanzania trip. Uh, We even phoned the various embassies. You know, I'm South African. My colleague's Kenyan. We wanted to double-check about visa requirements. Um, and so we thought things were fine. When we arrived in Dar, uh, no problem at all, you know, great welcome, chatted to the immigration person, you know, it was uh, like really welcoming. And of course, for me, it was quite important to be in, in, in Tanzania. And in fact, it was my first visit, believe it or not, wow. <laughs> to, to Tanzania. <laughs> yeah. And one of the reasons why it was important was that I had what I'd like to say now, <laughs> the romantic notion of the role that Tanzania played in our liberation struggle, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so if you look at the Pan-Africanist Congress and the fact that it was, a, you know, when, when, when the PAC was kicked out, 
um, by KK in Zambia. You know, they they got refuge in Tanzania. And given that uh, I have links and I'm certainly uh, interested in, in the Pan-Africanist Congress, for me it was also an issue of going there and just finding a little bit more and even if possible to find the camps. So there was work and personal interest on mm. the Cut a long story short, we met a whole lot of people, many journalists. We were quite open about whom we met, those who didn't want to meet us, of course, uh, or not, not wanted to meet us publicly, were prepared, you know, we'd meet them wherever they felt comfortable. And uh, that was that, you know. We could see the, um, as I call them, the spooks running around the, the lobbies of the hotel um, and the hotels that we were visiting, you know, uh, yeah. to meet people. But, I mean, that's part of the course, isn't it? I mean, you know, go to anywhere uh, on our continent or elsewhere, and generally you will find some person checking you out and probably reporting back to base. Mm-hmm. And I figure that's really what happened. So we had this wonderful day in Dar, and I remember going back to my hotel room and switching on the TV sets and watching Jim Acosta being ambassador <laughs> by uh, Donald Trump. Little did you know. Um, <laughs> little did I know. Knock, knock, knock on the door, and I'm thinking, gee, I want to see what's going on here on this TV. Who could it possibly be? Mm. Open the door, and I see a bunch of people standing out there and the first thing I've told is don't worry this is a routine immigration check yeah right mm-hmm. uh, nothing routine about it I mean they raided our rooms wanted to check we're pretty aggressive um, you know uh, one guy in particular uh, told me who the hell did I think I was coming to lecture to Tanzanians you know mm-hmm. that sort of thing um, and you could see as people got more and more upset, even though we cooperated throughout, um, it was clear that they wanted to do something and they wanted to get us out of there and they wanted to interrogate us. And despite the fact that we were willing to cooperate, uh, they, we, were, we said we want you know question us here. And as things got uglier, I said, well, look, I want my lawyer. I want... Um, the South African uh, consulate, uh, sorry, the, the embassy, the high commission to be alerted. Um, and, of course, they refused, saying it wasn't necessary, and I played for time. Uh, luckily, I was able to play for time, so that's when I sent this uh, Facebook message, this SOS to the world, and I was tweeted mm-hmm. to say that we were being uh, taken away to be interrogated, and, of course, all how hit the fan because people responded to that. Um, Meanwhile, we were taken on a journey around uh, Dar es Salaam. Uh, The car windows were covered so we couldn't really look out. Uh, We could see through the front. And they were trying to disorientate us, but I think what really helped us earlier that morning, we had actually gone somewhere and we recognized the, um, the, the board that said we had, where we'd been, and that's when we knew where we were. Mm. And the irony, of course, was earlier that day we had been told that the area that we were in was an area frequented by uh, uh, the intelligence agency, that many people, uh, many of the intelligence agents were based there, that there was a safe house there. So little did we know that a couple of hours later we'd be, we'd be taken to the safe house and we'd be interrogated. 
Um, but just to say that the story ultimately wasn't about us. Yeah. Uh, my colleague, um, who's from Kenya, uh, was treated really badly, uh, more so than me. Um, she's, she's, a, she's younger, but there's also... Anyone that understands the dynamics in the region will know that Tanzania and Kenya, there are, there are issues. Yes. Um, and so they picked, up, they picked on her. And they were also pretty violent. Uh, one in particular actually hit her in my presence. Mm. I mean, I can talk about it now, although I still sometimes just feel pretty emotional about it. Mm. And I really, that was when I thought, right, she's going to be, something's going to happen to her, something worse is going to happen to her, and I'm not in a position to stop it. I mean, when I tried to intervene, I was told to back off. And, and that's when um, I say to people, you know, I'm a control freak. Yeah. <laughs> When this is taken out of my hands, I'm unable to do anything. Well, you know, that was the moment. Mm. But look, all things, all, it, it ended well, and I think most of it worked because of, you know, just the tremendous outpouring of support and pressure that was put on the Tanzanian government. I mean, it was quite clear. During our interrogation, our main interrogator actually left for a while, and then came back, and then spoke to me and said to me, oh, I didn't know you were the Africa program coordinator and a whole bunch of things. And so they were clearly researching. Yeah, I think, <laughs> yeah. So after a couple of hours, we were released without our passports. So we were still, mm. you know, effectively prisoners. Mm. In a way, I mean, we would have the luxury of our hotel, at least we were there and not in some uh, safe house in the middle of nowhere and dark. But the point was that we were not in a position to leave. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to bore your listeners, yeah. but at the I end mean, of the Angela, day, the yeah. South Africans were great. I mean, they really assisted us, and we were able to get out. But uh, sorry, to, uh, just to say one thing, though. I think, you know, the, the silver lining for me was the fact that finally the spotlight was put on what's going on in Tanzania, yeah. and in particular what Tanzanian journalists are facing Day in and day out. I mean, uh, yeah. and that's the silver lining, yeah? Yeah, Angela, I actually wanted to interject there. You know, I'm originally from, I'm Ugandan, and so, you know, as you know, within yeah. that region, generally people within the region travel frequently and, you know, and, and all of that um, within, the, in, within East Africa. And something that I have noticed um, is that, you know, generally Tanzania was always seen exactly what you were saying at the beginning about how, you know, there was this romanticized idea with Tanzania, what they'd done with regards to South Africa's liberation. You know, it's the one Swahili nation, you know, the country of Nyerere, you know, one yeah, of the greatest yeah, leaders. Exactly. And now um, we've seen, I, I, I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts around this, you know, because uh, the current president, and I can't say new president, he's been in there for quite a bit of time. Um, but when he came yeah. in, he was seen as the great quote unquote reformer. He was going to ensure that all Tanzanians were kind of benefiting um, from, from all the goods, should I say, that are coming towards Tanzania. But systematically, it seemed as though things have changed. And, and, and so when I hear this story and also some of the other stories and the ways that journalists um, have been treated within Tanzania, it just almost shows to a degree that the democracy is not what it seems because when you start attacking uh, free speech and trying to regulate it, it says something, like somebody's trying to hide something. Yeah, so uh, President John Magufuli was lauded when he first came in. Yes. And, you know, uh, he was the bulldozer, right? He was the man that was going to go in there and clean up and, you know, act against corruption. Um, and, you know, 
in Kenya, there were people who were looking at him thinking, oh, you know, this is what we need. And you remember there was that hashtag, you know, Kenyans are great yes. on social media. What will Magafuli do? Exactly. Well, I think in the end it was what will Magafuli not do? <laughs> Because systematically, he kept, he was actually, yeah, yeah. He, he was violating mm. the rights of, of Tanzanian citizens. Mm. Um, the thing, and going back to what you said, yeah, I mean, if you think of the Tanzania of Nyerere and you think of Pan-Africanism, you know, I mean, as a South African, I know that when it comes to xenophobia and Afrophobia, I, you know, if anyone's got something to be ashamed about, I think it is South Africans, right? Mm. Uh, uh, you know, um, so I really wasn't expecting that. And that we, we kept on hearing the stories about how Africans were being treated, you know, in, in Tanzania. So from wherever you were, were from the region, yes. you were suddenly not welcome. Um, and that, that to me was just mind-blowing. I, I really didn't Because you don't that. expect it from Tanzania, exactly. You, no. they, they were like no, the epitome. Not at all. Yeah. Sure. And, you know, um, even as we're just having this conversation, it just makes me realize just around the world how we're seeing all of these, uh, you know, bulldozer presidents coming in power, the great reformers, they're going to change things. And all we see is a move to to nationalism, you know, uh, journalism being seeming to be under attack in a lot of these particular countries. And it's it's a it's a global problem at the moment. Very much so, including in the country that I'm currently in, yes. the United States of America. Yes. And I think that is part of the problem. The rhetoric against journalists has really uh, created a situation and an environment all over the world where journalists now are probably more at risk, are more, more likely to be arrested. Um, you know, so it's not a great time to be a journalist mm. Uh, around the world, no doubt about it. And we've seen it in terms of our work, you know. Yeah. Uh, so the rhetoric that we've seen coming from the United States, for example, has, man- has emboldened people on our continent who have not had a great record exactly. when it comes to music freedom, but now suddenly feel, oh, you know, oh, if Donald Trump can do this, well, then I can do exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's fake news this, and it's you fake news that, and <laughs> um, left, right, and center. Mm. And, uh, but I think what's important to stress, though, and, and I think this is where, you know, when we're talking about the right to media freedom, uh, the right to free expression, I mean, this isn't about the right of journalists only, okay? Mm. And I sound like a stuck record, and whenever I talk to people, I try to say this. You know, ultimately, it really is about the right of citizens to know. Okay, mm. it's the right of citizens to get information from a variety of sources, from a you know as much a pluralistic media. You know, you don't just want one voice. You want to ensure that you're able to get credible information from credible sources. Mm. And unfortunately, what you've seen is you clo- you've seen the closing of that space, mm. um, and that is the problem. And so citizens are more likely to to buy into the so-called propaganda disinformation that you see that's being put out there and not necessarily uh, realizing that there are credible journalists out there who are really putting the facts out there for people to hold their governments accountable, yeah. to hold corporates accountable, you know. Um, and ultimately, as I say, yes, the, when you see media freedom being violated, Citizens need to understand, actually, ultimately, it's my rights that have been violated too.
even as journalists face harassment and arrest in a growing number of countries, their work can still expose egregious abuses, help victims find safety, and hold the corrupt and the dishonest to account. In dictatorships and democracies alike, courageous journalists have defied powerful interests to bring stories to the public, enabling their audience to take action and bring about real change. We also spoke to Nima Albahi, Sudanese-British journalist and an award-winning senior international correspondent with CNN. Nima broke the story of smugglers in Libya auctioning migrants off as slaves, among many of her other stories. She told us how she prepares for some of these stories and how she goes into dangerous situations. One of her big stories was going into a quarantined area where people had Ebola, and this is what she had to say. We actually volunteered for that trip. Oh, wow. Um, my producer, <laughs> yeah, my producer who was with me, Lillian Leposo, is just the most extraordinary Kenyan woman. And I was at home in Sudan. I'd just come out of, uh, of Iraq, out of Baghdad. And I was at home in Sudan, and she called me and said, are you going? And I didn't even know what she was talking about because I had just been so disconnected. And I said, I, what? And she said, uh, if, you're, if you're going, I'm going. We have to go. And I think that was one of those situations where I tried very hard to, to walk into every room as a journalist. But I think it was one of those situations where I definitely, I couldn't help but walk in a little bit as an African. Yeah. Because it felt like we had turned our backs on, on, on West Africa, that, that the African Union, that all these countries that are so quick to castigate the West and to bring up colonialism and accuse developing nations of always turning their backs on Africa had done the exact same thing. You know, they had quarantined West Africa. They had shut their borders. And I can understand that level of fear, but at the same time, these are are our brothers and sisters. Mm. And I think the most, the scariest thing about, Ebola for me was the fact that people were unable to comfort their loved ones. That even as you saw somebody's partner or husband or or child die, you couldn't touch them. You know, the most basic of human interactions. Mm. You couldn't actually hold them or hug them because that was the only way you could stay safe. And I think that that is almost the that is almost the invisible scarring that people still haven't gotten over. How do you move on having had to erect those barriers? Um, I, don't, I don't know that, I, that I've gotten my head around, you probably tell, because I'm completely you know, inarticulate mm. <laughs> about this. No, but but I think I think you did explain it. You explained it perfectly well. So it's yeah, it's it's okay. I mean, I and I think a lot of the stories and the the, the situations that you are in are almost hard to describe because they almost seem like this should not be happening, you know. And and that's why sometimes it's it's a little bit hard to you know to explain the the emotions and, and the entire situation. Now now talking about another story, I think that this is um one of the your biggest stories um that gripped you know people's hearts across the world. You know, um the 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 Libya slave trade. I wanted to know um because you mentioned with the Ebola story, um your producer uh, basically called and said, "Are you going? If you go, I'll go." What was the how did you know that all of this was happening in Libya? What was the the tipping point for you to decide to go in as an investigative journalist and and find out the story? 
we had actually been working on this for a while while we were covering the migrant crisis coming into Europe. We had started hearing these stories and I just remember thinking, this is impossible. Um, it's impossible that it's happening and it's impossible that we would ever be able to get this on camera. And then slowly I was in one part of the story and then Raja uh, Razik, who was our producer on the Libya story, was she actually was in Libya at one point and she had posed as a Syrian refugee and she had gone into these warehouses. It was the first time we had seen the inside of these warehouses because she had been able to go in and film on her phone posing as a Syrian refugee who wanted to pay for safe passage to Europe. And she came out and at the time, what really shook her was that she was told, you know, she, she saw the African migrants in a separate part of the warehouse bundled together. And she pointed at them and said to the smuggler who was showing her around, what about them? Mm. And he said, don't worry about them. You won't see them. Mm. You know, you're going first class wow. and they'll, they'll be locked below deck. And she just was so horrified mm. that she, she, you know, she called me and we were um, just exchanging notes and trying to build up this testimony. Mm. And I, um, I went off the last, so I went off, I stopped traveling at about seven months pregnant, six, six months pregnant. Mm. And I, I went off from work at about seven months. And um, it was all we talked about. Raj is actually one of my closest friends. I'm very lucky. I, um, I tend to work with people I love, mm. I'm, I'm, which is great because of the stories we do. You need to really trust the person you're working with. And Raja and I just spent most of my pregnancy and then into my maternity leave mm. I was off for about eight and a half uh, months just working on this. And I think that was really helpful because it meant that whereas normally I'm bombarded with so many stories that I'm working on at the same time that, that we actually just had the space to really look into this. And it was the last month before I was due to come back, it was in August, that Raja was able to finally get through to the network of contacts that she had on the ground. And one contact said... Yeah, I, I've been I've been to these auctions. I know where they are. And we said, okay, can you just keep can you keep asking questions? Can you keep your ear to the ground? And then a week later, came back to us and said, I have footage because he'd oh. gone in. And as soon as he'd gone in, for his security, when they started saying to him, "Are you here to buy, or are you here for someone else who wants to buy?" And of course, he didn't want to blow his cover. And so he said, oh, I'm, I'm here for someone else. Mm. And they said, okay, then you can film. And that's wow. why that first shot is so clear, because he just held up his iPad and filmed. And that was in August. And I came back to work at the beginning of September. Mm. And then we, um, and Raja's Palestinian-American. So the what was really useful for us was that in Libya, especially both speaking Arabic, mm. the Libyans are so mixed that you can be my skin color and be Libyan. You can be Raja's mm. skin color and be Libyan. And the Arabic we speak in Sudan is very close to Libyan Arabic. And so we were just, once we knew that this is something we wanted to do, CNN was just extraordinary. They were very supportive in setting up the, the security infrastructure mm enabled us to manage the risk and then it just became about the conversations that Raja and Alex 
Platt, who was the amazing cameraman who was with us, were having on the ground and just kind of trying to feel our way through, well, how far can we go? Mm, sure. And now, um, if, if I can also just ask, you know, or, you know, um, you know, there was a huge outcry um, from, like from around the world in general, but from my perspective, and I don't have any stats or anything, you know, to say, but from the way that it looked um, from my perspective, it almost looked like as though Africans in the diaspora responded a lot, um, you know, they were hit a lot harder by by the story versus um Africans who were in Africa it was a, it was a hectic story but it it you know it didn't hit as hard as what it did for Africans in the diaspora you know um and then and 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 I wanted to know if if you, I mean if if you thought I mean what you think could possibly be the reason for that is you know I think you're right I I definitely agree with you that our sense was also that Africans in the diaspora seemed, whether it's African-Americans or um, Brits of African origin or actually uh, a lot in France, Francophone Africans. I, I've thought about it a lot, actually. And, um, and I wonder whether it is because it is that kind of nightmare at the edge of your consciousness where you want to believe that this isn't how we're viewed, mm. that for a lot of these people who live their day-to-day existence feeling unwelcome and not feeling at home, you know, for you, you're South African, you are, you're in your country with all of the, the legacy of apartheid and all of the, the hurdles that South Africa is still trying to overcome, you are still at home. Nobody can take that away from you. Mm. Whereas if you are of African origin and you are in France, or if you're an African-American and you're the descendant of slaves, this feels like that specter that you had hoped would never rise again. Mm. And yet, here it is. Mm. Sure. And and now also just a final question around um, this Libya uh, slave trade story. Just the whole... You know, how do I say? Okay, so I've always been, I've been caught up in this in two minds. You know, on one hand, um, I do think, and even from the great reporting that was done by yourself and your team, and, you know, just from hearing about it and everything, that a lot of people, before they decide to take this journey from home um, to Libya, before they head off to, to Europe, they are aware of the dangers. So, you know, the women are aware that there's a possibility that, you know, certain things might happen to you. You might be raped or, you know, that sort of thing. But I kind of like, I'm kind of like wondering why it is that people just, they don't stop. If they know that these things are happening, you know, as a, as a mother or as somebody who's like, say, living in, in Nigeria or Eritrea or something like that, if you know that these things are kind of happening and there is a danger and a possibility that you're not going to make it to the end, you're not going to make it to the other side, why do you think it is that people still take that risk against all, all odds to try and see, like, look, let me try it. Maybe I'll be one of the lucky few. Mm. Uh, well, Eritrea is a different case mm. because in Eritrea you have conscription and you have no end in sight to mm. that conscription. Mm. So it's either stay in Eritrea and be forced into what passes for an army there or be imprisoned. I mean, the horrors that they face in Eritrea are inexplicable. Mm. So I, I have no problem understanding why an Eritrean would take this risk mm. because what you know and, and people forget that even if you survive what happens to you in Libya there's a chance you'll die at sea 
Yeah. So in terms of how the odds are stacked against you, but I think that's us viewing it from our perspective. When you're on the ground, you are being sold this dream. You know, nobody's telling you this is going to happen. They're saying, well, if you're unlucky, this will happen. And if this happens, then don't struggle. Nobody really explains to you that the odds are stacked against you right mm. from the beginning. Mm. So in Nigeria, they are actually going out into these communities and, and selling these kids on this. People are, are lending them the money. So even before they are sold into slavery in Nigeria, they're already indentured them back home because if they don't reimburse this person this guarantor then their family is in danger uh, their loved ones could be thrown in jail they are in danger so they already um they're already indentured mm. into servitude before they even step foot on libyan soil mm. and when they get in when they get to libya they've they have been fooled with regards to how much the trip costs so they're told that you have paid in full. Then they get to Libya and then they're told suddenly, no, actually, you haven't. Sure. I need still another several thousand dollars from you. And and that comes as a shock to people. Mm. And I'm always blown away by that. But it it does. And they don't understand. And I guess maybe this is a testament to the unending nature of human optimism. Nobody ever thinks it's going to happen to them. Mm. And nobody understands that the deck is stacked so that it does happen to them. It's not just that it might happen to you. There is no way that it won't happen to you because you are fodder. You as a woman are there. Part of, your, part of the price of entry for you in order to make this trip to Europe is that you will be forced to work in the brothels. Sure. And nobody really explains that to you. Mm. <laughs> That's even just so chilling. I can't even imagine, you know, it's it's just, yeah, it's beyond inhumane. Um, and... I, I wanted to also just ask something, you know, um, because I, I mean, there's a journalist who passed away from um, Ghana for, who was part of the BBC, I believe, Komla Dumo. And I yes. watched, yeah, yes. what a, he was an amazing man. Amazing, amazing. And his TED talk um, about uh, basically about telling the African story, I just think is so phenomenal, you know. And in there, he mentioned about, um, he, he spoke about the importance of telling a balanced story about Africa. Um, and he spoke about how some of his friends, like from Nigeria or like and, and Ghana and everything, would always be like, Komla, okay, you need to tell the stories of all the good things that are happening, <laughs> or, you know. And then he was like, it's okay to tell the stories of the good things and the development and everything, but we all also have to be able to tell a balanced story about the other side of it. Now, I can imagine that while many people celebrate all these stories that you tell um, that are going on, you know, um, in different areas around the continent, they must also be, do you ever come into a situation where people specifically from Africa are kind of like, Nima, this is great. Thank you very much for telling us about this, that and the other. Please, you need to show the world the other side of Africa. And how do you balance um, telling, the, you know, a, a, an equated story about Africa with regards to that? How would you answer that kind of question? Well, firstly, I would say I'm a journalist. Yeah. And so my job isn't to of any narrative my job is to tell the story and the good thing tells itself where I am most useful is where I can call attention to something but I would also hope that by you know by being visible hopefully I'm telling a different mm. story about Africa mm. by being a representation of an African woman in a lot of um situations where most people won't really have 
any kind of familiarity with African women. And hopefully it would also be through the choices I make in terms of the media that I choose to engage with. Um, I mean, we were really, really happy that you that you guys put in a request to, to speak with me. Uh, you know, I've, I've loved it so far. Um, and I will always want to try and engage with African media, engage when, mm. I'm, when I'm not traveling with, with panels and try and speak to African journalists and hopefully share a little bit of my experience in a way that might be useful. But mm. fundamentally, my job is to be a journalist. Mm. I'm not an activist. I'm not... Mm. You know, this is, this is what I do and what I do hopefully has value. But other people also have responsibilities and have opportunities to be of service. Mm. Femi Oke, who's the anchor for the stream on Al Jazeera, is extremely passionate about freedom of press. Here's what she had to say. I think some, a journalist is a communicator, an mm. expert communicator with a responsibility to their audience. Mm. There are so many different kinds of journalism right now. There is uh, data journalism, which is incredibly important, which is crunching numbers and figures and working out from just looking at stats stories and why stories are very important. They're obviously uh, sports journalism, entertainment, politics, uh, and I feel that there's more and more varieties of different ways of storytelling than there ever has been before. Mm. Documentaries, documentaries are also journalism. What I do on the stream, which is very accessible mm. um, and outwards can be as part of the storytelling and as part of the information sharing as the hosts are. That is also journalism. So, so many different kinds. So, I feel that it is the responsibility of the audience and the communicating is very, very important. I was originally taught about being objective and I think that is very important. Mm -hmm. But I think more important than that is share with your audience as many different perspectives of this story as you can because there isn't one side and then another yes. side. In life, life is not that simple. Life is not black and white. Mm. Life is more sort of shades of black, white, grey, all in between, and then pops of colour. And I think as, a, as I get older in the profession, I realise that. And also sometimes you're doing a story, and the story might be about child abuse, mm. and there isn't a one side and another side, and you're not doing the story justice if you do well on the other side there's this because actually sometimes you should just do explain the story from the perspective of the person who suffered sure. so so many different ways i think what you're referring to is the way that in certain parts of the world journalism is quite divisive mm. um, and certainly on our on our continent on africa in on the african continent it's a really hard profession to do mm. um and and uh and politicians and authorities want to sway you. They don't like what you say. They might turn off the internet. That's a new thing, turning off the internet. Um, it's very annoying. For somebody who spends a lot of time online, it's extremely frustrating. But there are ways that people who don't want the truth to get out will try and stop that truth from getting out. And I think that, again, is, is part of the role of a journalist. Somebody mentioned to me just recently on Twitter, I said, well, you're an African opinion leader. And I said, no, I'm a journalist. And that person thought that was exactly the same thing. Mm. And I very rarely say my opinion because it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the story is and have I done a good job of telling you the story. And then your opinion matters. 
not my opinion. Zaina Shur, a British-Nigerian news anchor at CNN International, based in New York City, took some time out to speak to us. I asked her whether social media had a positive or negative effect on journalists' jobs. Well, it's tricky because social media, um, in a way, helps journalists but also competes with journalists at the same time. So on the one hand, you know, um, people now get their news a lot of times from social media. I mean, we, we've talked plenty of times on CNN. This is not just to do with Africa, it's just it's in general. Mm. Um, we've talked plenty of times on CNN and just people getting their news from Facebook or from Twitter. But the problem with that is that it makes our job in a way harder because, yes, people are getting more informed, and I welcome that, but oftentimes the type of information and the accuracy of the information that we get from social media is problematic. Oftentimes it's skewed um, towards some kind of political slant or political bias because, you know, especially in a place that is as divided as America, people search for news that already validates their point of view. Yeah. So they either go to a partisan newspaper or they go to social media where their own sort of circle of friends are putting up, you know, information that validates what they already believe. So they stay in their own silo, their own bubble. And as a result, they don't necessarily expand their worldview. Um, they don't expand their intellect. They're not um, sort of crossing cultural boundaries and thinking about things in a new way, which is what the purpose of that's part of my role as as a news anchor and as a journalist on CNN is to make people think about things differently, think about things that they never really thought about. And so you have social media that is kind of competing at the same time with certain news outlets, but at the same time making our job harder because then we have to correct um, what people have learned on social media. And then they think, I mean, this is what's happening in, in um, the United States with the whole fake news, mm. you know, this whole hashtag fake news, et cetera, that's targeted predominantly, I think, at CNN, but a lot of other media outlets as well. So people are so used to being in their own bubble on social media that then when they see CNN or another news outlet that doesn't necessarily agree with them or doesn't switch. reflect back to them what they already believe, they think, oh, well, that's, that's fake news. We don't believe that. Mm. Um, so I think that social media, as much as it's changed the world in a positive light, I can think of so many positive social media stories just in terms of the way it bridges communities together. But at the same time, I think when it comes to journalism, I think it's made, it's made things a lot more complicated. And that's how we come to an end of another important episode of Africa's State of Mind. When one thinks about press freedom, it's very important that we think of it in the context of democracy and how it is that press actually needs to keep people who are in power accountable and tell the true stories of the people in the various countries and communities. If you want to share any stories or insights or thoughts around world press freedom in general, either from your territory or your region, please do send us a tweet at Africa State Mind. Also remember to join the Facebook group, which is Africa State of Mind. And also remember, wherever it is that you get podcasts, do review us. It makes it easier for people to be able to find us. Um, so that's on iTunes, Live Podcasts, Google Podcasts, just about anywhere. My name is Lee Kasumba, and it's been a pleasure hosting this podcast today. Bye. Head to lifepodcasts.fm to find out more on the positive changes people are making on the continent in Africa State of Mind. Subscribe to this podcast at lifepodcasts.fm or on your favorite podcast app. Subscribing to a live podcast is free.